0: So we're going with Paul with Corinth. We started the first four verses, I believe it was yeah, first four verses of chapter eighteen of Acts last week so we'll we'll pick up from there. But we have Paul in Corinth. Remember what Corinth was like. It was sort of like um Las Vegas and New York City on steroids with a much greater sexualized component of their community. Uh, That's Corinth. There was that Greek word that got coined in the first century, to Corinthianize. And that meant to live in a sexually immoral way. Uh, That was the city of Corinth. It was a port city. Everybody, almost everybody going from east to west, west to east in the Roman Empire would pass right by Corinth. So that's why Paul went there and stayed 18 months The only place we have record of him staying longer is in the city of Ephesus. We're going to get there soon in Acts. Uh, But he stayed 18 months in Corinth. Uh, The the Corinthians were very proud of all their temples, particularly the temple that was atop the Acropolis or the Acro-Corinth, the big hill behind the main square of Corinth. Uh, The Acro-Corinth had a a temple to Aphrodite, goddess of love, in the ancient world, and there are like a thousand temple prostitutes uh, that served that temple and served a lot of other ways, too, in that community, in that seaport town. So Corinth was um, a challenge for Paul. You know, here he's bringing the Christian gospel tied to uh, traditional Jewish sexual ethics, and both were completely unknown and non-appreciated uh, in the city of Corinth. So it was a fascinating place. So we, we've got Paul in the first four verses of 18. We've got Paul there in Corinth. He met, I introduced him to you last week, if you didn't know, know them. Uh, he met one of my favorite couples in the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they had recently been banished from Rome along with all the other Jews in Rome. And we have historical evidence that that banishment in 49 AD under Emperor Claudius w- w- occurred because the Jews were debating and uh, they were dis- they, they, they were fighting each other over somebody named Crestus. And we think Suetonius, the Roman historian, didn't know, but that's Christ. So um, because of the Jewish debate um, in In Rome, uh, over Christus Christ, uh, the Emperor just banished them from Rome. Uh, the Jews have a long, long, long history of being banished from places where they 've lived outside of the holy Land so uh, that 's why Priscilla and Aquila then go to Corinth. Uh, they um, have the same have the same uh, livelihood as Paul usually gets translated tent maker. You saw that last week. But um, the word in the ancient world would be better uh, translated as leather worker because you made tents and other things out of leather. Uh, they, don't, they didn't make, you know, polyester pump, tent, pump tents for your backyard. So he's a leather worker. So these three were leather workers. So they um, were Christians. They were probably Jewish by heritage. Paul certainly was. We think Priscilla and Aquila was. Uh, they were uh, leather workers, and I think God providentially sent them to Corinth so that Paul could find somebody there in Corinth he could partner with in Christian ministry. Um, and, and you're going to continue to read about Priscilla and Aquila, and you'll read about, you can read about them in other books in the New Testament. So I hope you get to know Priscilla and Aquila. So with that, uh, we ended in verse 4, And he, Paul, reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, he always starts with the Jews. He reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath, and he tried to persuade the Jews and the Greeks. The Greeks in the synagogue would be those God-fearers, uh, those, those Greeks that attached themselves to the Jewish community. Um, so let's pick up at verse 5. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, remember we left them up in Berea, we left them up in that area between Berea, Thessalonica. Um, that's Macedonia, northern part of Greece. We're in the southern part of Greece in Corinth. But finally, Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia. By the way, we also know from elsewhere in the New Testament that they arrived with a donation, financial support, from the Christians in Macedonia. Uh, When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the Word. You know, would to God that more Christian pastors in our land were occupied with the Word. Seems like they're more occupied being a CEO of a religious organization. But that's not our model. That's not our standard. Uh, Again, go back to the book. Here's a picture of Paul. He's occupied with the word. I think part of what Luke is implying here is that with the arrival of Silas and Timothy, uh, he could be even more occupied with the word. He could give himself more fully to the proclamation of the word uh, because Silas and Timothy were there to help. So he's occupied with the word. Notice what he's doing with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. Um, Christ is Greek. Uh, Some of your translations, I'm glad more and more English translations are doing that, even when they run across the word Christ, Christos, in the Greek, they will use, what's the other word that can be used? Messiah. Some of your translations may say Messiah. Messiah is the Hebrew word. Christ is the Greek word. Same same title. The person that was sent by God to deliver the human race. So what he's trying to prove to them from the word is that this Jesus, this historical Jesus, was the Christ, was the Messiah. And again, he's doing that using the Bible. And of course, for him, the only Bible he had was Old Testament. Uh, Christ is in every book of the Old Testament. That's a Christian conviction. Uh, he's prophesied. There's prototypes. Uh, there's foundation being laid for the preaching of Christ. That's why the early Christian community had no New Testament. They were developing it. So the early Christian community had no problem preaching Christ from their Bible, which is the only Bible they had was the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. So he's using the Bible here in the Jewish synagogue, teaching them that this Jesus, this Nazarene preacher, that was killed as a criminal under the uh, uh, Roman Empire, this was the Messiah that had been prophesied throughout the Hebrew Bible. Uh, Verse 6, and you know what's coming. And when they opposed and reviled him, and you may not see this coming, he shook out his garments. He shook the dust from his feet, is the way Jesus would have said it. He shook the dust from his feet. He shook out his garments, and he said to them, these are the Jews who weren't receiving him, your blood be on your own heads. These were Jews. They knew he was quoting the prophet Ezekiel, which is a way to say you will bear your own blame. You will bear the responsibility for rejecting what I'm saying about Christ. So he shook off shook out his garment, shook the dust from his feet when Jesus told people to do that, that was a way of saying, I'm out of here, you can have what you want i'm not going to give any more time here. uh Paul knew when to go, and Paul knew when to leave. Paul knew when to invest in a certain place he knew when to stop investing in a certain place that's why you see different lengths of tenure everywhere Paul went so here He just shook out his garment, shook the dust off his feet, said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. heads. I am innocent. From now on, I will go to who? Gentiles. Now, one of the things we do know, he's meaning at this point simply in Corinth. Because we're going to watch him go to Ephesus, and guess what? He starts right back again with the Jewish people. But as far as the Jews in Corinth, he's saying, you know, "I'm, I'm finished with you. Now, from now on, I go to the Gentiles. That's everybody that's not Jewish there in Corinth. So he goes to the, goes to the Gentiles, and um, verse 7 fascinates me. He left there, synagogue, Jewish community, and we have archaeological evidence of this synagogue in, in the ruins of Corinth. Um, so and he left there, and he went to the house of a man named Titius Eustace. That's a Latin name, Roman name. A worshiper of God, that's a God-fearer. What well, fascinates me the next line. His house was where? I bet that irritated the Jews in the synagogue. <laughs> Paul didn't go far. He went next door. So in some ways, he shook the dust off his feet, but didn't go far. So, um, yeah, the Jews still are not happy at this point. They wanted him out of the city. They wanted him gone. So anyway, he's in the house of Titius Eustace. And again, just you know, pay attention to the ministry of hospitality, the ministry of support uh, that comes from generous hearts. So here um, Titius Eustace uh, was providing hospitality for Paul um, in his house, which is next door to the synagogue. Look at verse 8. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, uh, in some places that position is called the president of the synagogue, Rabbis were in the process of being developed in this period. Uh, At this point, whoever had a word and wanted to exposit or teach the scriptures could do that in a synagogue. But somebody had to be responsible for for opening the doors, setting things up, getting the scroll out, taking care of all the logistics uh, that were necessary in order to have your synagogue meeting. By the way, the word synagogue just means a gathering. So in order to have that Jewish gathering, somebody had to... um, take care of the logistics. That would have been the president of the synagogue, or as my English translation translates it, um, he's the ruler of the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household. Uh, I guess Crispus and his household, the first converts uh, here in Corinth, uh, he, he may be the only fruit that Paul got out of that synagogue was um, Crispus, who was the ruler of the synagogue, has pretty good fruit uh, in a, of his evangelism there in the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord uh, together with his entire household. His household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. So more were baptized. Actually, in 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul mentions some of those he baptized, including Crispus. Uh, so, Look at verse 9. And here you should have, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, you should have red letters here. Red letters are not confined to the Gospels. You should have, if you have a red-letter edition of the Bible, you you hopefully realize there's red letters outside of the Gospel. Here's a place where some red-letter editions of the Bible print these words in red because this is Jesus speaking to Paul. Uh, Paul's going to have a vision here beginning in in verse 9. There are six visions in the the book of Acts. Uh, Six visions in the book of Acts. Uh, One of the things I mentioned on Monday to the group, I, I think I'm right. We can keep watching and doing our homework, but I think I'm right. Every one of the visions that someone receives in the book of Acts, they receive for their own benefit. Now, let me tell you why that's important. If the Lord gives you a vision as to how to straighten me out, I might question that. You know, some people love to get a word from the Lord that they can use against other people. Um, I don't see that in the New Testament. Uh, The visions that you see, such as this one, was God, Jesus, showing up to Paul for Paul's sake. You know, he didn't show up to Paul and give Paul a vision to tell Paul how to go straighten out the Jews. So um, I, think that's, I think there's a lesson there in the way we um, uh, relate to each other in the body of Christ. Anyway, the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision. Here's, here comes your red letters. Do not be afraid. Well, that sounds like Jesus, doesn't it? Do not be afraid. He's saying don't let anyone intimidate you. Don't let anyone intimidate you. I don't care if it's the whole Jewish community and all the Gentile community. And if you're standing alone, don't let anyone intimidate you. Um, years ago, I read the book. Some of you may know the author John Bevere, B-E-V-E-R-E. But he, he's written a lot of popular books. They're all very popular. One of the books he wrote is about 20 years ago now when it came out, but it's still in print. I think you can get it for about 11 bucks. It's called Breaking Intimidation. You know, as a Christian, you shouldn't let everything in life and everybody in life intimidate you. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And sometimes I, 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 I'm saddened by how easily intimidated some people are. I probably have said in your presence before, I see some people so intimidated by a menu they can't place an order. I mean, don't let life, don't let people intimidate you. That's a spiritual issue. If you're walking around on eggshells throughout your life because everybody, everything intimidates you, you might need to read John Bevere's book. He'll help you read the Bible in such a way that you realize intimidation, allowing the world to intimidate you. Uh, You're not going to be a faithful follower of Christ. You're certainly not going to do your work of evangelism well. You need to know how to do your work of evangelism, but the world will make you stop doing your work of evangelism. We need to do our work of evangelism fruitfully, winsomely. We need to do our work of evangelism tactfully, but we need to do our work of evangelism. And the world will try to intimidate us to make us stop that. But some people are just very easily intimidated, which is why Jesus loves to say to you, do not be afraid. Don't be intimidated by the world around you. Whatever it is I've called you to do, uh, I will empower you to do it. So he's saying to Paul here, who's in a tough place in Corinth, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Again, no intimidation. For I am with you. That's the power we have over fear and intimidation. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. Now I like to always make a distinction between harm and hurt. Oh, they'll hurt you. They'll make you bleed. But ultimately, no harm will come to you because God's going to keep you in the palm of His hand. You're the apple of His eye. He's going to get you home before dark. Um, So you you can be hurt. You will be hurt by others. You will be hurt by life. Uh, You will have no choice. No choice but to live with the consequences of other people's behavior. The only thing you can do is forgive them uh, as you live with the consequences of other people's behavior. But all that hurts, but not harm. In my mind, there's a distinction. You know, uh, you're going to be okay. When the end comes, you'll be fine. God will not allow any harm to come to you. That doesn't mean you won't bleed when you're cut. But ultimately, he's going to get you home before the dark. He, he is going to take you to where he wants you to go. He will finish the work that he has begun in you. So there's a difference between being hurt and harm. Make sure we understand the difference. If we don't, we won't know what the promise is from God. God has not promised that we would not be hurt, but we will not be harmed in the long run. He's going to take care of us. So he says, I'm with you and no one will attack you to harm you. They will attack you. They will attack you, but they won't be able to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. I'm sure Paul is glad to hear that in Corinth, because it didn't look that way to him. Uh, It reminds me of the prophet Elijah, who thought he was the only one left. He forgot about the hundred uh, prophets that had been hidden by Obadiah, and eventually God says to Elijah that he, God, has 7,000 other people there in Israel who had not bowed the knee to Baal. Um, sometimes we feel like we're all along, which again, that makes it easy for the world to intimidate us. Uh, but God always has his remnant everywhere. God always has his remnant. So I know that that pleased... He, he, he knew Priscilla and Aquila was there, and he probably thought that was it. But he says, uh, I have many in this city who are my people. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months. Doing what? Running a religious organization. No, teaching the Word of God among them. So that is the second longest period Paul stays anywhere, is these 18 months that he stays in Corinth. Now, after he leaves Corinth, he's going to write two, probably three, perhaps four letters back to the church at Corinth, because they were an ongoing project. They still had all their pagan immorality, they, they still were by nature, by culture, by training, by environment. They were, in, they were enmeshed in paganism. So they were an ongoing project. So even after Paul left, he was continuing to write instructions back to them. You have 1st 2nd Corinthians in your Bible. So they, 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 were, they were a project. They were a project. Now, as we finish up in Corinth, comes one of the most significant passages in the book of Acts. It is going to set our future pathway as a Christian movement, um, and you'd probably just run over this as quick history, but it's, it's being shared with you by Luke for a really important reason. So look at verse twelve. But when Galio, we have record of Gallio. Gallio was proconsul of Achaia. but when Gallio was pro proconsul of Achaia, we have his name and other engravings. In the ancient Greek world, we know who he was. We know he was proconsul the years 51 and 52 in Corinth. Almost all of Paul's life that we date, we date in relationship to this. We know when Gallio was in Corinth, so we know when Paul appeared before Gallio. Gallio was a, a fairly famous person in the Greco Roman world, first century. His brother was more famous. His brother was Seneca, the very famous um, uh, Stoic uh, philosopher. Uh, Seneca was uh, the tutor. He probably was not proud of this later. He probably thought he completely failed. But Seneca, the Stoic philosopher, was the tutor of Nero when he was growing up. Uh, So a lot did not take that Seneca tried to teach Nero. But Seneca was famous and more famous than his brother Gallio. But Gallio was a Roman official. Here he is in Corinth. We know exactly when he was in Corinth. But when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the southern part of Greece, the Jews—and again, I've said this several times, and, but it needs to be said every time you run across it—usually when you see the word or the phrase, the Jews, in the New Testament, and I know my English translation in front of me, which is the English Standard Version, has a little number. Beside the word the Jews, number one, that would take you to the bottom of the page, and it would say the Eudioi. Eudioi, as far as um, Judah, Jews, Udayoi, the Eudioi, the Hebrew word, or the Greek word that comes from the Hebrew word Eudioi. So when you see the Jews, you're talking about really the Judeans. You're not talking about all Jews everywhere that's ever lived in all the places they've lived on the earth. You're talking about Judeans. And, um, and actually, my little study note at the bottom of the page, and this is not a study Bible. This is just the manuscript of the New Testament. But they felt it important enough to make sure when you read the Jews, the study note or the textual note in my translation, Greek, probably refers here to the Jewish religious leaders and others under their influence. Because we have done horrible things when we, in our history, have blamed all Jews for what some, very few, of their religious leaders did. You know, that's why you watch you know, cheesy movies about the life or death of Christ. It looks like every Jew in Palestine is out there crying, crucify him, crucify him. That was not the way it happened. It was a select group of Jewish religious leaders who are protecting their pride of place, protecting their status um, that went after Jesus, that are going after Paul here, the Udioi. But what we have done throughout Christian history, we've called all Jews Christ-killers. And throughout our history, um, that's where, this is one of the places where anti-Semitism comes. Throughout our history, we, we started out calling all Jews Christ-killers. Well, then our theology is that Christ is the Son of God. Christ is the incarnation of God. So by the third century, we're not just calling them Christ killers. We're calling them God killers. All of them. And that's why usually in the Middle Ages when there'd be a passion play, as soon as that passion play was over, the village uh, people would go out and beat on every Jew they could find. Well, again, that's part of the complicated, long roots of anti-Semitism. So like in the Gospel of John, you'll find the phrase, the Jews, 60 times. Make sure you always translate translate it, the Jewish religious leaders from Judah. That's who you're talking about there. Because we have a long history of going after all the Jews because of some things we blamed all the Jews for. And that's why, like the ESV, they don't have a lot of textual notes, but they're going to put a textual note right here because people have read passages like this where it says the Jews made a united attack on Paul, and that kind of thought has led to anti-Semitism throughout our history, and it's led, led to the Holocaust. You know, we felt we were warranted to do that stuff because they were Christ killers. They were God killers. They went after Paul. Um, but you got to make sure you, you, you understand who's, who the players are here. These, these are some of the Jewish religious leaders at this point in Corinth who stirred up the people. I'm sure they got some people to join on their bandwagon, and they went after, um, went after Paul. You know, I encourage you, please, and there's a lot of places you can do this, go to Amazon.com, Google, Google books on anti-Semitism, and then you won't be so shocked by some things you're seeing in the world today. We have a 2,000-year history. Of anti-Semitism, most of the time, most of the time, it's been Christians against Jews, not Muslims against Jews. Muslims against Jews—that started happening with the establishment of the state of Israel. But for for almost two thousand years before that, most anti-Semitism in the world was Christians attacking Jews. We have a long history, so we need to know where it comes from. Make sure we don't repeat it. You know, by saying things like. The God of the Old Testament is, is judgmental and vengeful, and the God of the New Testament's good. Well, that's problematic on so many levels. But I hear intelligent Christian people who still say things like that. And it's not only anti-Jewish. You just make God schizophrenic, which is an issue also. Uh, God is God. He's the same in Genesis as is throughout the Bible. He doesn't change. Uh, people have always been saved the same way. Um, but we, we, there's a reason why we have 2,000 years of, of anti-Semitism. And you see it right here in the texts. So it began early. It began early. So here's Paul. He, he is, um, the Jews make a united attack against Paul, still in verse 12, and they brought him before the tribunal. Uh, if you've been to Corinth, um, you, the word tribunal there uh, is Bema. B-E-M-A in the Greek. The bema, the bema seat. If you go to Corinth today, you can see the bema. The bema was the raised platform where um, someone like Gallio would preside. When I was there in April, uh, I think it was just me. When I was there in April, I, 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 I videotaped a little message back to the congregation as I was standing on the bema. There in Corinth, you can still go see where Gallio presided in the ruins of, of Corinth, so the Bema is mentioned twice right here in this text, In my English translation is is rendered the tribunal. See they bring they bring Paul uh, before the tribunal because that 's where Gallio, the proconsul would preside in verse thirteen, you see what they 're saying, saying, "This man is persuading people to worship God." Contrary to the law. Now, they're not specifying whether it's Jewish law or Roman law. They probably mean Jewish law. They hope that Gallio is hearing Roman law. Because if Gallio doesn't hear that uh, Paul is, is um, going against Roman law, you're going to see what will happen. He could, he could not have cared less about Jewish law. So they, they, are, they are, I think, intentionally vague at this point. When they say to Galileo, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law, they're hoping he's, he, he, they're hoping he, they, Gallio thinks Paul is going against Roman law. Uh, Gallio is too smart for that. Again, he had a very smart brother too, Seneca. Verse 14, but when Paul was about to open his mouth, so Paul doesn't even get to open his mouth. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, so you're going to see right here exactly how, how Galileo translated which law um, that they were accusing Paul of breaking. So before Paul opens his mouth, Galileo says to the Jews, if it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crimes, such as what would be determined by the Roman law, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of questions about words and names and your own law... In other words, it's a religious dispute. See to it yourselves. I refuse to be a judge of these things. So he's saying this is not a Roman issue. He hasn't broken Roman laws. So I'm not getting involved in your Jewish religious squabbles. Um, let me wrap this up, and I'll tell you why this is important. Uh, verse 16, and he drove them from the tribunal. Galileo said, I've got more to do with my life than listen, to you try to drag me into these religious squabbles? And he drove them from the tribunal. Well, of course, that did not satisfy the crowd that was coming after Paul. So verse 17, And they all seized Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue. Why Sosthenes the ruler of the synagogue now? Because Christmas got converted a few verses before. So, you know, Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, got converted. They go out and they get Sosthenes. Now here's Sosthenes. Um, just, we don't really know why. They all see Sosthenes, the ruler of the synagogue, and beat him in front of the tribe. I, don't th- I wouldn't want that job in the synagogue there in Corinth. Uh, maybe he was leaning toward Paul. We don't really know for sure. They just, mobs do this. Irrationality. Irrational people will do stuff like this. They just need to beat somebody. And they can't beat Paul, so they go get Sosthenes, who you're going to read about, by the way, in 1 Corinthians. They're going to go get Sosthenes, and they're going to beat him. Uh, so they beat him in front of the tribunal, in front of the Bema, the raised platform. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. Uh, and let me tell you why that's important. Why that's important for Luke, why that's important for the rest of the book of Acts, why that's important for you sitting here in this room today. Uh, the... Um, The Roman Empire said that the Jewish faith was, to use the Latin phrase, a religio licita. The Jewish faith, the Jewish religion was a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire. The only reason they did that was they knew the Jewish religion was much older than the Roman Empire. And they also knew these Jews were scattered all over the Roman Empire. So they, they were declared a legitimate religion. Uh, we 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 know from church history, we don't get persecuted or prosecuted by the Roman Empire as long as we're considered part of the Jews because the Jews is a legitimate religion in the Roman Empire. That was decided long before Christ came. As long as we were part of the Jewish community, as they saw us as part of the Jewish community, just like right here, Gallio sees... Um, sees this as in a religious dispute with the Jews that he's not going to get involved with. They let the Jews alone uh, because they were a, a, a legitimate religion. So, but then later on, when it becomes obvious or it looks obvious that we Christians have divorced from the Jewish community and we go a long way from Jerusalem in a lot of different ways, uh, we, we, we look different from the Jews. Well, at that point, we were not. We were not covered under the Jewish umbrella of a religio licata, So we started getting persecuted. That's why you don't really see Rome coming at us in the New Testament period, except maybe the book of Revelation. You don't really see Rome coming at us, But what, which is good. That, that allowed for evangelism. That's why Paul had the covering of the Roman Empire everywhere he went. No matter what the Jews did to him, the Romans considered him legitimate. Because they considered him Jewish, they considered this a Jewish thing. So, so Rome considered them legitimate. So, one of the things that's significant about this text by Gallio paying no attention, by Gallio refusing to persecute or prosecute Paul, he just declared, he just declared this new, this new, this newfound way of being Jewish, uh, the Christian faith the way, the people of the way, the Nazarenes, he just, con- he just, he just uh, pretty much pronounced them a, relig- a religio licita. They're legitimate. So um, even though the Jews didn't like Paul, what's wrong? Rome's okay with them. Now, who is the only non-Jewish author in the New Testament? Luke, who wrote the book of Acts. One of the cases he is making is Rome doesn't have to hate us. Rome doesn't have to hate us. We are as legitimate, Luke would probably say more legitimate, we are as legitimate as the Jews in the Roman Empire. Rome doesn't have to hate us. And when you get to the end of the book of Acts, where are, going to, where are we going to leave Paul at at the end of the book of Acts? in prison in Rome awaiting a trial by the Romans. So this may very well be Luke's um, defense of Paul, saying, you know, Rome has nothing to fear from us. Um, you know, the, you may be told we're turning the world upside down, but we're really doing the world a great service and a great benefit. So at least early on, particularly as long as we were seen as part of the Jewish community, and at this point we certainly were, uh, Rome didn't bother us. They sort of protected us almost at times. You know, here Galileo just decides he's not going to get involved in the Jewish squabble, but notice he sees this as a Jewish squabble. Christianity is a new way of being Jewish. We as Christians are grafted onto the vine. Um, we are part of the, the, the descendants of Abraham. Go back to Genesis 12:1 and following. We are grafted onto the vine. We are the new Israel. Uh, because we've been grafted onto the old Israel, and that makes a new Israel. Um, we are, and this is obvious for the first hundred years of the Christian faith. But then here's Paul taking taking the Christian faith all over the world. Here he's in Corinth. He's going to end up in Rome. And my goodness, for it's over with here it is in High Point. Yeah, y'all don't act very Jewish. So the so the parting of the ways begin to occur, but. Obviously, in our beginning in the New Testament, nobody, nobody assumed us to be two different religions. You know, it's not like Jesus and Paul were Christian and the Pharisees were Jewish. That, that language, that's anachronistic. You're using language that the people in the New Testament would never have understood. These were all just Jews debating, just like the Pharisees against the Sadducees, against the Zealots, against the Essenes, against the Nazarenes or the people of the way. Christians. These were Jews just debating amongst themselves, which again, that's why I guess I don't do math well, but two thirds of your Bible is Old Testament. Make sure it's sacred text to you. It's sacred text. You know, we decided early on we were not throwing out the Old Testament. So you need to pay as much attention to the Old Testament as the New Testament. The Old Testament lays the foundation for the New Testament. The New Testament completes the Old Testament. You can't understand one without the other. Uh, And I'm grateful for Gallio here who understood that we were part of the Jewish community. And he refused to get involved. And he was not going to bring any charges against Paul. I wish he'd helped Paul out a little bit more. But he refused to bring the power of Rome against Paul. So this is a very significant place. Let me just end with one text. Because again, um, part of our convictions, historic convictions, about the Bible is you interpret Scripture with Scripture. The Bible is self-authenticating. The Bible is given as the Word of God to us written. And God has given it to us not in code. He's given it to us so, so, that, so that we might understand it. So just to give you a text, go to 1 Corinthians. Because like I said, there's two letters to the church at Corinth that Paul will write back to them. And they're fascinating letters. Fascinating letters. And they reference other letters that Paul wrote to Corinth. But just to give you a sense of how Paul... Because this is Luke writing about Paul in the book of Acts. Just to get a sense of how Paul would write about his relationship to the people in Corinth. Um, and to get a sense of what Paul's preaching. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And we will end with this. Notice what Paul says. And he's writing to the church of Corinth. And I, when I came to you, when I came to Corinth... And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. Uh, If you read 1 Corinthians, Paul is at least saying that nobody thought he was a great orator. He was not a Cicero in the ancient world. He was not even, by the way, you're you're going to meet Apollos soon in the book of Acts. Apollos was a better speaker than Paul. So Paul's saying, "I did not come to you proclaiming the testimony of the witness of God with lofty speech or wisdom, Verse two, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. You know some preachers today they they want to know how you know top top ten things to do to raise successful children or the five steps to have a great marriage or I mean l- look at sermon topics in today's world. Paul said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you, watch this, in weakness and in fear and much trembling. He beginning to get a sense how it felt to Paul to be um, there in Corinth. And my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Again, he wasn't a great orator. Uh, particularly the Corinthians, because they were not far from Athens. They were part of that Greek intellectual culture. So Paul could say, you know, my speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom, but in, this is what's important, Paul says, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Signs and wonders were occurring there in the ministry of Paul. Those attested his words. He didn't have great Eloquence, but, but the Holy Spirit's work around him was um, a demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that's part of what confirmed the preaching of the Word in Paul's ministry. Uh, one New Testament scholar says, if you read your New Testament, it looks like there was a force field around the early Christian community. Supernatural, miraculous things were happening. So Paul's saying, my words weren't that good when I came to you. I came to you uh, in fear and much trembling But there was demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Verse 5, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men. Again, Corinth is close to Athens. So that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. So you get a little taste there of how Paul reflects on his time in Corinth. Uh, I do commend 1st St. Corinthians to you. Um, Particularly 1st Corinthians gives you a good picture of how messed up that church was. Those people want to come to Christ and bring all their pagan morality with them. That's why you got Paul, and I've said this to you multiple times, but I want make sure you hear this. That's why Paul has to say in 1 Corinthians to those people, incest, bad idea. Prostitution, visiting prostitute, bad idea. Um, turning, turning the Lord's Supper into a gluttonous... Feast where you ignore the poor folks—bad idea. I mean, he has to explain all this stuff to the Corinthians. They came to Christ, but they had some baggage they brought with them, and that's why First Corinthians. Because, by the way, First Corinthians—Corinth looks a whole lot like our culture today. So that's why during COVID, I spoke to an empty room for a few months. Teaching First Corinthians on the podcast. But if you want if you want to have if you want to have a word to our culture today, go look, go read First Corinthians. Um, Paul had to say that to them because they were pagan, they were Greco Roman. They received Christ, but they they did not they could not comprehend, could would not understand what they had to leave on the other side of their new life. Um, Corinth is an amazing place amazing place. I'll, I'll never forget my first visit to Corinth. It's, it's ruins today. You drive about an hour outside of Athens. It's amazing ruins. It's right there on the um, uh, on the Corinthian Canal, which ships do pass through now, three and a half mile canal going from east to west. And there is a little place you can stop and get some food, like a big convenience store. And um, as soon as I walked in, I saw this turnstile, I guess you call that, thing that turns around and you sell books or whatever. There was this turnstile of playing cards. And let me just say the pictures on the playing cards were indicative of Corinth and Corinthianizing. (laughs) That was 2005 I walked in that store. And I'm like, things just don't change much. (laughs) Things don't change much. Anyway, let's pray together. God, I'm so grateful for this group that will give attention to your word, this group that will um, allow your word to sit in judgment on them. God, we don't want to sit in judgment on your word. We want to hear your word to us. And God, we thank you that you love us so much that you communicate with us. You speak to us. You reveal yourself and your way to us. And you've written that revelation in a book. God, we thank you that the Bible is your word written for our behalf. So, God, we, we pray that we'll make it central to our lives as we seek to grow up into the image of Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Go in peace. Make some friends in the room.